Tonight, President Biden is on his way to Israel in a show of support and to press Israel to do everything it can to minimize civilian casualties. But just in the few hours since that trip was announced, Biden's task has become considerably more difficult. A major summit focused on the humanitarian crisis is now canceled. Last night, after Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced the president's visit, Israel continued to launch airstrikes into southern Gaza. And I'm mentioning southern Gaza in particular because late last week, Israel issued an evacuation order for all civilians in the northern half of Gaza. And hundreds of thousands of Gazans complied. The Hamas-run Interior Ministry of Gaza claims that the airstrikes last night and this morning in southern Gaza killed 80 people and wounded dozens more. The New York Times asked an Israeli military spokesperson why Israel continued to strike southern Gaza after calling for people to evacuate there. The spokesperson responded by saying that Hamas fighters were hiding among the Gazan civilians. NBC News cannot confirm or deny that, but among the dead in that strike were women and children. One hospital tells the New York Times that out of the 42 bodies they received, 10 were women and 15 were children. Today, a doctor at a hospital in southern Gaza told the Times, today is worse than all the previous bad days. With many displaced from the north, more people share the same homes, and thus there are more casualties in each strike. So that was where things stood this morning. And then at around 7 p.m. local time, hundreds of people were reportedly killed by a strike on Al-Ali Hospital in Gaza City. Although the hospital was in the northern half of the Gaza Strip, many of its patients were unable to flee to the south for medical reasons, and many civilians were using the hospital as a shelter. Tonight, the Palestinian health ministry said 200 to 300 people were killed in a, quote, targeted Israeli airstrike. A spokesperson for the Israeli military denies that Israeli forces targeted that hospital and instead claims that a smaller militant group known as Islamic Jihad is to blame. That group, the Islamic Jihad, is the second largest armed group in Gaza right behind Hamas. They are an independent group separate from Hamas, but they are frequently aligned with Hamas against Israel. They are also believed to have Israeli hostages of their own. Now, the scale of this attack and the fact that it hit a hospital where civilians were sheltering is already changing the potential for negotiations in this region. Almost immediately after that strike, there were massive protests in the West Bank. And just hours ago, we learned that tomorrow's scheduled summit between President Biden and the leaders of Jordan, Egypt and the Palestinian Authority, that meeting has now been canceled. A senior Palestinian official told the Associated Press that the Palestinian president is very angry after the news of the Israeli massacre at the hospital in Gaza, and he decided to immediately return to Ramallah. The White House put out a statement saying that in light of the days of mourning announced by President Abbas of the Palestinian Authority, President Biden will postpone their planned meeting. The White House added that Biden looks forward to consulting in person with these leaders soon. But President Biden is nonetheless still on his way to the Middle East right now with none of those meetings scheduled. We know from Secretary of State Blinken's address last night that one of the priorities of Biden's trip is getting Israel to minimize civilian casualties and allow humanitarian assistance into Gaza. That includes potentially creating designated safe areas for civilians to stay out of harm's way. 
As of right now, more than a week into this crisis, Gazans are still trapped. The Rafah border crossing into Egypt remains closed. Even Palestinian Americans are not allowed to cross. And because of Israel's blockade, basic necessities within Gaza, like food and fuel, are in such short supply that fights are reportedly breaking out over single loaves of bread. Our staff has been in touch with a 21-year-old student in Gaza. This was her reaction after the strike at Al-Ali Hospital in Gaza City today. Where are we supposed to go? Me as a civilian, where am? Where should I go? They told us to go to the south. We went to the south and they bombed the south. They told us to go to schools. We went to schools and they bombed schools. They barbed the most, the safest person, the safest place in the world is hospitals, and hospitals are bombed in Gaza. As of tonight, the death toll in Gaza has risen to more than 3,000 people. In Israel, the death toll remains around 1,400, but Hamas is still holding upwards of 200 people hostage. This is a war. This is a hostage crisis. This is also a humanitarian nightmare. And President Biden is headed into the eye of the storm. Joining me now from the Israeli side of the border with Gaza is NBC News correspondent Ellison Barber. Ellison, thanks for making the time tonight. I, I just, because no one is claiming responsibility for this attack on the hospital in central Gaza, I wonder if you think we're going to have a clearer picture as of tomorrow. I'm sure investigations are ongoing. Yeah, I mean, everyone wants to know who did this. And that's a really important question that we want answered. But right now, NBC News has not been able to independently determine who is at fault here. What we do know is that there are a lot of civilian victims, hundreds. You mentioned the statements, the numbers that we have coming from inside of Gaza. The director of Gaza's health ministry said they believe up to 500 people could be dead because of this uh, explosion at the hospital. He said they're having a difficult time determining an exact death toll in part because there are so many bodies. He went on to say that right now they are dealing with a lot of bodies that have been dismembered, bodies that are charred, and that's making all of this even more difficult to get an exact death toll. But from the videos we have seen that our team has received from the ground, from conversations we've had with doctors and other civilians inside of Gaza. What happened here is absolutely horrific. A lot of the video we have, it is too graphic to show, but it does show a lot of what Gaza's health minister is describing in terms of the death toll being so high, in terms of bodies being charred. There are children we have seen in videos that were injured in this. It is an absolute disaster, and everyone here is pointing fingers at each other. And right now, we do not know exactly how this happened. But I do want to walk you through some of what everyone is saying here, just so people have all of the information that we have right now. So inside of Gaza, Hamas, as well as their Ministry of Health there, they say this was the result of an airstrike from Israel. Israel is adamantly denying that. The IDF had a briefing not long ago with reporters, and they said that they have collected footage as well as some sort of phone audio recordings that they say will prove that that militant group that operates inside of Gaza, Islamic Jihad, was behind this. They say that Islamic Jihad was firing a rocket at Israel and that it misfired and then hit the hospital. 
Islamic Jihad has now put out a statement saying that Israel is lying here. And I'm going to read to you some of the argument that they are making uh, to support their claim that they did not do this. They argue in part that eyewitness accounts, as well as videos of the explosion, show the weight of the explosive head, the angle of the bomb's fall, and the extent of the destruction it left behind indicates an aerial bombardment launched from a warplane, which is what Israel has been doing. Again, NBC News has not been able to independently verify who is at fault. There's a lot of video out there. Israel has already released some. They say they're going to release more, that we're trying to sort through all of it. What we do know is that hundreds of civilians have likely died in what happened here. And based on information we have from doctors at another hospital in Gaza City now treating a lot of the victims, one of them sent us a statement earlier tonight. He said they were overwhelmed before this and their hospital was already crowded, overflowing with patients. Now they are struggling to keep up with the amount of injured and dead bodies inside. He said the majority of the victims, the bodies that they are seeing coming from this explosion at the hospital in Gaza City, they say most of them are women and children, and they say a lot of them are people who were simply sheltering inside of the hospital, Al-Ahali, because they thought it was going to be a safe place for them, and it was anything But the IDF says when President Biden is here in Israel that they will brief him on this and they say they will present the evidence they claim they have that they believe will prove they were not behind this, that it was Islamic Jihad. But right now, we do not know for sure exactly who did this. We do know that innocent civilians have died and the images we are seeing, everything we are hearing, it is just beyond words. Alex? Just a catastrophic uh, loss of life. Alison Barber, thank you for joining me this evening and stay safe. We will be back to you for some more reporting, I know, in the coming hours. Now I want to turn to Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut and member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Murphy, thank you for making the time. The president is en route to Israel. The summit that I think a fairly critical summit he had planned with regional leaders has fallen apart. Um, What does that signal to you about the prospects for opening up humanitarian corridors, taking into account a a looming humanitarian crisis. What does that what does that say to you about um, the prospects for all of that? Well, the primary purpose of the president's trip is to stand with Israeli leaders, to make it clear to the world, to Israel's enemies, to our enemies, that we are going to help Israel hold the perpetrators of the terrorist attacks of two weekends ago accountable. Uh, And so that remains the centerpiece, and I think a very important centerpiece of this trip. I think it's regrettable um, that uh, Abbas and uh, other leaders in the region have pulled out of this summit, especially when, you know, we have, you know, no indication right now that uh, this uh, was an Israeli uh, attack. Um, I choose, frankly, to believe Israel, not Hamas, um, in these early days pending uh, the data being presented. Um, But the president is going to continue to be engaged with the Palestinian Authority, with the Jordanians, with the Egyptians. Um, He and Tony Blinken have been working day in and day out to try to prevent this conflict from uh, escalating and spreading. So far, that diplomacy has been successful. The announcement last night that there is going to be an opening of humanitarian corridors into Gaza is important. So you're seeing this president deliver uh, on his promise to be a a, a capable and able steward of American diplomacy. And I think this trip, even though it'll be a little bit more limited in scope, will still be really important. You, you, um, you, in your words, you 
you tend to align in terms of uh, who is responsible for this with what the Israeli Defense Forces are saying. But do you think that there is any risk for the White House, the president going to Israel at the exact moment that there's this catastrophic loss of life, each side pointing fingers at the other, if there is any credibility to what Hamas is saying, if there is any credibility to what Islamic Jihad is saying, do you think there is any risk for President Biden to be over there uh, not knowing exactly who is responsible for the attack on this hospital? Well, I mean, listen, I just don't accept this as a, you know, he said, she said story. The credibility of Hamas and the credibility of our democratic ally, Israel, are not equivalent. And so I think it's okay for American leaders right now to trust Israel. I think Israel should present the evidence that they have. They should probably present it to the world because there are skeptics who are not going to believe them. But this trip is also an opportunity for President Biden to sit down with Benjamin Netanyahu and really talk about the path forward. Because if there is going to be a ground invasion, that is an incredibly complicated endeavor that begs some very serious political questions, the most important of which is who will control Gaza at the end of that operation. Uh, we've been through uh, similar uh, endeavors in Afghanistan, for instance. And so President Biden has some wisdom to provide. And so as a strategic advisor to Israel, President Biden is essential. And so this trip serves a dual purpose, standing with Israel to show that we are going to hold Hamas accountable, but also trying to help uh, Israel as it makes some key decisions right now about exactly what it's going to do as it moves into Gaza. Yeah, and I would assume, per my earlier question, that preventing a catastrophic, further catastrophic loss of life, especially where it concerns civilians, is probably one of the deliverables that one would expect from this meeting as well, or at least some assurance that that's being taken into consideration, no? Of course. And listen, I think that, you know, Israel um, having... Uh, had experience after experience in which they have attempted to decapitate Hamas or Hezbollah and failed, understands the risk of simply entrenching Hamas's power um, by being careless about civilian casualties. Um, but of course, the United States is going to make clear that uh, if Israel wants us as a partner, then we expect them to follow the rules of war. And we can share with them um, our experiences in Afghanistan when we did not pay close enough attention to civilian casualties. And we paid the price. A 20-year war in Afghanistan where the Taliban got stronger with every year, not weaker. Uh, we do not want Israel to make the same mistake that we made in Afghanistan. Surely. Um, I, I have to ask you, as we talk about the preservation of life, the hostages that are being held, we now have reporting, uh, and NBC News is reporting, that uh, after tense negotiations between U.S., Israeli, and Qatari officials, Hamas is open to releasing women and children it holds captive, non-combatant women and children. Um, but Hamas is also noting that it does not have custody of all the, uh, the hostages that were seized in the attack on Israel 10 days ago. Are you optimistic about this negotiations process? Boy, um, you know, that's a that's a hard word to get your head wrapped around at this moment. I, I'm certainly hopeful. Uh, I'm appreciative of the efforts uh, that the Qataris uh, uh, have undergone to try to negotiate um, their release. 
Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I hope that Israel would be very open to a, a temporary suspension of activities if that's what's necessary to get these hostages uh, out. Um, but I think we're making progress from what I understand, and I hope there'll be some good news soon. Certainly a complicated situation made even more complicated by the fact that um, multiple terrorist organizations appear to have these people, these innocents in their custody. Senator Chris Murphy, really appreciate the time and thoughts. Thanks for thanks for coming on the show tonight. Thank you. We have much more to get to tonight, including the fallout from the explosion at that Gaza hospital today and what it means for the larger war. But but first, the last time House Republicans tried to elect a speaker, it took 15 rounds of voting. How many rounds will Jim Jordan go? That is next. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Today, the House held a vote on Republicans' latest nominee for Speaker, Ohio Congressman and Trump ally Jim Jordan. That vote failed after 20 Republicans opposed Mr. Jordan, which is the exact same number of Republicans who opposed Kevin McCarthy during the worst of the 15 votes it took him to become Speaker of the House. Now, the second vote for Congressman Jordan is set to take place tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're wondering why this whole process is so protracted. Remember what former Speaker John Boehner had to say about Jim Jordan. You call some of these members political terrorists. Oh, yeah. Jim Jordan, especially my colleague from Ohio. I just never saw a guy who spent more time tearing things apart and never building anything, never put anything together. With Republican colleagues like that, who needs... Then earlier this month, the former House Republican conference chair offered this resounding endorsement. Jim Jordan knew more about what Donald Trump had planned for January 6th than any other member of the House of Representatives. And if the Republicans decide that Jim Jordan should be the Speaker of the House, there would no longer be any possible way to argue that a group of elected Republicans could be counted on to defend the Constitution. There is no member of Congress more associated with Trump's plot to overturn the 2020 election than Jim Jordan. Remember the day before the January 6th attack, Jim Jordan forwarded a message to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows outlining a legal theory for why Mike Pence should not certify the election. 
Congressman Jordan then voted against certifying that election even after the insurrection at the Capitol. And then he struggled to explain just how much contact he had had that day with President Trump. Yes or no, did you speak with President Trump on January 6th? Yeah, I mean, I speak. I, I spoke with the president last week. I speak with the president all the time. I spoke with him on January 6th. I mean, I talk with President Trump all the time. And that's that's I don't think that's unusual. On January 6th, did you speak with him before, during or after the Capitol was attacked? I don't know if I spoke with him in the morning or not. I, I just don't know. Uh, I'd have to go back. and. I mean, I don't I don't I don't, I don't know uh, that when when those conversations happen. But um, but what I know is I spoke with him all the time. Jim Jordan, a person in Congress, then defied a congressional subpoena from the January 6th committee where he might have had to elaborate on that answer under oath. Since Trump left office, Congressman Jordan has been the vanguard of Republican efforts to discredit the investigations into Trump. He chaired the House Republican subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government, which has so far failed to turn up any evidence that the federal government is being weaponized. He has tried to inject himself into the state cases against Donald Trump by badgering district attorneys Alvin Bragg and Fonnie Willis for information, despite having no authority over state prosecutors. As The New York Times' Jamel Bowie writes today about Mr. Jordan, once again, Republicans are confronted with a deeply transgressive fig figure with open contempt for the institutions of American democracy, flawed as they may be. Once again, Republicans swear they'll resist his ascent. Once again, Republicans cave, more fearful of losing a primary or coming in from criticism from conservative media than they are of virtually anything else. And each time they cave, these Republicans make the situation a little worse for themselves and for the country. Joining me now is the author of that, Jamel Bowie, New York Times opinion columnist. Jamel, thank you for being here tonight. Um, the latest news is that Jim Jordan had to postpone this second vote because it looked like he might be getting even fewer votes of support than he did in the first round. How do you read that in the context of the broader Republican push to avoid personal peril and put whoever in charge of the speaker speakership? I think it is interesting that there are still enough Republicans who are sort of unwilling to vote for Jordan. He's alienated enough people, his tactics for this vote today were very hardball and that may have not done him any favors. I think it's interesting that there's still enough Republicans unwilling to bend to that. But what is also interesting is how these same Republicans are not willing to do what seems to me uh, to be the easy solution to this problem of not having a Speaker of the House, which is just finding some ac acceptable, moderate-ish Republican that Democrats can vote for to be Speaker, figure out some deal that people get to keep their committee assignments. Uh, you know, uh, bills can go on the floor without uh, without support from the majority of the Republican conference, but you have a Speaker, the Speaker is a Republican. And the fact that there is no one in the Republican conference willing to do that I think is a sign of how much they are gripped by this fear of being primaried, of being criticized, of having President Trump say something, just a profound fear of having to maybe put themselves on the outs with some portion of the Republican Party. Yeah, I, the fear threshold is different for voting against Jim Jordan in however long it takes to hold a House vote in the afternoon versus the prolonged fear of being a, maybe attacked by Sean Hannity. What's, what, what really has struck me about Jordan's campaign for the gavel is the way in which it is 
it totally it is all just about intimidation. I, I for people who do not know, Sean Hannity is kind of an acolyte of Jim Jordan in this fight to get him the speakership. Um, Axios reports that a producer for Sean Hannity's show sent the following email to moderate Republicans. It read in part, Hannity would like to know why during a war breaking out between Israel and Hamas with the war in Ukraine with wide open borders with a budget that's unfinished, why would Representative whoever be against Representative Jim Jordan for speaker? That's not exactly a neutral inquiry, Jamel. Does it surprise you that it's so obviously a campaign of fear and and intimidation? It surprised me a little in that this generally isn't how campaigns for the speakership go, right? The whole point of being House Speaker is that you're able to lead your majority, uh, count votes, deliver legislation, all these things. And that sort of intention, like that job is intention with uh, uh, exercising this sort of like sh- these sort of strong arm tactics that are threatening your colleagues with like political harm uh, if they don't vote for you. You can't really do both at the same time. I'll say, you know, <laughs> Evo's funny because it's, you know, it's like, why won't, you know, with all with, with, with Israel and Ukraine, why won't you support Jim Jordan? To my mind, the answer is like, well, with Israel and Ukraine, why would I support Jim Jordan? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> like, he is, he is someone itself. who has no interest in anything other than isolationism. To that end, I guess I, I mean, if it is Jim Jordan, what does that suggest to you about what happens in the next act of a Republican Party that actually has a Speaker of the House? Is it a foregone conclusion that the House, that we, the government is shut down, that it's effectively a very dysfunctional, if not outright non-functional House of Representatives? You know, my inclination is to say yes. Sort of the Jim Jordan is a one of the founders of the House Freedom Caucus, and his strongest supporters are these Freedom Caucus members. One of the defining attributes of that group of lawmakers is they're not just hardline or right wing or extreme, but they're basically allergic to any of the things necessary. They kind of do legislative politics. They don't compromise. They don't, even amongst themselves, really, they don't compromise. They don't you know, engage in deliberation. They don't do anything that would allow one to run an institution like the House. So my expectation would be that if Jim Jordan becomes speaker, we're in for a roller coaster of dysfunction because these are precisely the kinds of people who, by disposition and habit, are unable to do the kinds of things necessary to just like run the place smoothly. And there's there's a cost to that, though, too. Right. The Speaker of the House, more than anybody, should be aware of the number of votes he has in his corner. And dysfunction does not breed a second term of Congress where you hold the speaker's gavel. Right. The the irony is the more dysfunctional, the more the Jordan agenda is enacted, whatever that is, the less likely there will be that, that Jordan will have an agenda or even the speaker's gavel after the next election. Right. Right. I, I don't see a world in which Jim Jordan becomes speaker and then is able to hold on to this for all that long, in part because of the tactics employed, in part because of the, everything leading up to this situation, the tactics employed against uh, Kevin McCarthy. It's sort of everything about this suggests that whoever holds the spot has a pretty tenuous grasp on everything. I think we should mention, it's important to mention as well, that Jim Jordan is, and you mentioned this earlier, Jim Jordan is uh, like an arch-insurrectionist, right? So in addition to everything else, we have the situation where if you become a speaker, you know, uh, 
believe third in the line of presidential succession is someone who actively tried to overturn constitutional government uh, on behalf of Donald Trump. But that, that is also, to put it lightly, very disturbing. Yes, never forget that. It, it is such a whirlwind. The, that's being euphemistic, the House Republican Conference. You'd think <laughs> that they shouldn't even use nameplates on the speaker's doors, maybe just a dry erase board, and they can just like write the name of whoever has the job for however long they last. Jamel Bowie from the New York <laughs> Times. Always good to see you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. When we come back, the aftermath of a devastating airstrike on a hospital in Gaza that was sheltering civilians and the fight to get more innocent people out of harm's way. That is next. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Before we start, I want to warn you that some of the image you, images you're about to watch are very disturbing. No one is willing to take the blame for hundreds of people killed in Gaza today by a missile strike that hit Al-Hali Hospital in Gaza City. The hospital was packed with wounded people, including children. Many other Palestinians were also seeking shelter there. According to Palestinian officials, up to 300 people were killed. It is a devastating, painful scene and one that could also amount to a war crime. The health ministry run by Hamas immediately blamed Israel for the lethal attack. Israel, meanwhile, denies it and instead blamed another terrorist faction in the region, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. President Biden, who is on his way to Israel, announced tonight that American officials are launching an investigation into what happened, saying, I am outraged and deeply saddened by the explosion at the Al-Ahli Mast Arab Hospital in Gaza and the terrible loss of life that resulted. I have directed my national security team to continue gathering information about what exactly happened. That investigation will likely take some time. In the meantime, the attack is having an immediate effect on President Biden's push to develop a plan for humanitarian aid in Gaza, and that is needed with greater urgency every passing hour. Joining me now is Hani Almadoun. He is the Director of Philanthropy for UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. Mr. Almadoun is from Gaza. He has lost 16 family members during this war. And unfortunately, one more of his family members was also at the hospital that was struck tonight. Mr. Almadoun, I'm so sorry for your loss. And thank you for being here tonight, despite the, the tragedy that your family is going through. Um, let me just first get a sense of what you know about the attack on the hospital and what you've heard from your family. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity, despite the tragedies that engulf the Palestinians wherever they look right now. It is just to take a moment to recognize all the pain and the agony that my fellow Palestinian siblings experiencing right now. This is just a horrible cruelty every day. It gets worse. And, you know, we did lose a family member who's married into the family. So this is just tragedy because it's hard. You don't really know what is going on, who is going to bury whom. Everybody's trying to find safety. Hospital was that safety place. You know, there was about 5,000 people taking shelter there, many kids, many women. And all of a sudden we see this massacre and to Palestinian ears that looked like uh, something they've seen of here, the just massive sheer level of destruction that generated by the airstrikes, you know, Palestinians already uh, blaming Israel as we recognize that this is a, a difficult thing to do in America here where they like to take their time with uh, with reporting, the reality is it's too painful for the Palestinians, including my family right now. So the person that lost their life among the at least 300, I'm hearing numbers as high as 500 uh, victims of this uh, bomb. I know that, you know, the Palestinians are hurting right now. And here is why, if you remember the Shirin uh, Abu Akla case, there was a lot of denying at the beginning, then it became maybe we did it, then okay, it seems like likely we did it. So, you know, there is there is cruelty for blaming people for their own death, and that's just horrible. Now, when my UNRWA USA, which is separate than the UN agency that does the work, we're focused in the US here, we know that there sure is shortage of water, massive shortage of water right now and it's just painful to see families trying to get water for their kids and it's not just affecting kids you know there is a livestock in gaza that's not uh, getting water there is in addition to that you know medicine is running low most of the hospitals are depleted and you know early in the show you've mentioned uh, they would like to investigate what happened Who's going to investigate it? You know, we've lost 15 members of our of UNRWA staff in Gaza. Those are UN agencies. The UN flag is no longer respected, right? Firefighters lost eight or six people yesterday. Ambulances were attacked. This is not true. Really, this is a humanitarian disaster. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the administration finding a, a solution for Gaza. But also right now, as we figure out what the political outcome would be, the reality is it's really already a humanitarian disaster. As you've, you know, you've heard me probably mention this in other shows, my family is trying to find safety in northern Gaza, which is an area that the Israelis told them to evacuate. And, you know, if there is a safe way to do it, we're, you know, we may consider it, but right now nobody feels safe, even in the South today. And according to UNRWA's reports, there, there was bombardment. So there is definitely, as you may look at the map, you know, that Gaza is very small and we want to make sure that we are able to provide services. And if the UN staff cannot find safety, how are they going to protect others, journalists, doctors? The hospital is heartbreaking. I'm sure tomorrow will bring some more clarity on what happened as speaking as a Palestinian and not, you know, somebody in a UN agency, I, it, it feels like a lot of the Palestinians are feeling the anger and that's going to affect a lot in the region. As you've seen some people already rioting in different countries and that happens when there is vacuum in leadership. And I know that America, the leader of the free world, has not felt like it for many people like me recently. So we want to change that. Hopefully with President Biden visit to the Middle East, we will hear some assuring guarantees that Palestinian lives matter. In the past two weeks, maybe we did not, the last 10 days, we have not heard the president verbally and forcefully 
say that the lives matter in for the Palestinians in Gaza. And that's my hope. And I continue to pray for the safety of my family and for all those affected by this uh, war on Gaza. Hani Al-Madoun with the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Thank you for making the time tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Still to come this evening, defendant Donald Trump's return to a New York courtroom. That's next. Donald Trump was back in a Manhattan courtroom again today as his New York civil fraud trial entered its third week. After observing testimony from witnesses, Trump then took his chance to air a wide selection of personal grievances, not just about this New York case, but also about the gag order imposed yesterday in the federal case involving his efforts to subvert the 2020 election. As part of that gag order, which Trump began to appeal... The former president is not allowed to make disparaging remarks about special counsel Jack Smith or his prosecutors, about any court personnel, or about any foreseeable witnesses or their expected testimony. It remains unclear what the penalty would be for violating this gag order, and so far today, Trump seemed to walk right up to the line, but did not cross it. This is a rigged trial. This is a rigged situation. And our country can't stand these things. And the people of our country understand it. We're being railroaded. And I have other trials we're being railroaded. You saw yesterday where they take away my right to speak. I won't be able to speak like I'm speaking to you. And I'm not saying anything wrong. I'm saying the truth. Trump, of course, remains free to speak to the public and, as you can see, to news cameras, as long as he isn't speaking about federal prosecutors or court offices or witnesses in that case. In other words, there are still a lot of people Mr. Trump can talk about, which was made clear today when Trump railed against New York Attorney General Letitia James, who he called corrupt and racist and used a racially charged epithet against. Outside court today, the attorney general, Letitia James, responded to Trump's outbursts. Mr. Trump may lie, but numbers don't lie. And the fact is, is that the judge has already decided that he engaged in repeated and persistent acts of fraud. And so he can call me names. He can engage in distractions. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, Mr. Trump, unfortunately, his entire empire was built on nothing but lies and on sinking sand. Now, Trump has a busy schedule here in New York. In addition to the civil fraud case he attended today, Trump had to face questions under oath as part of a wrongful termination lawsuit filed by former FBI agents Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. Strzok alleges Trump's Justice Department wrongfully fired him because of Trump's public anger towards Strzok and his work in the Trump-Russia investigation. That deposition has not been made public, so it is unclear what Trump said in his defense, but he is expected back in court in New York tomorrow and back in front of the cameras, and we will ha he will have plenty of opportunities to tell everyone. When we come back, it has been two full weeks. Two full weeks now without a Speaker of the House as Republicans remain mired in their own mess. So what should Democrats be doing here? Claire McCaskill weighs in. That's next.
It has now been two weeks and there is still no Speaker of the House after Congressman Jim Jordan today failed to secure the votes needed to take the gavel. Jordan's ascent from the fringes of the Republican Party to potentially being the leader of the House of Representatives has created an opportunity for Democrats, at least according to Democrats. Joining us now is Claire McCaskill, former U.S. senator and current MSNBC political analyst. Claire, thank you for being here. Political, Politico is reporting that Democrats see Jordan's potential speakership as a gift ahead of the 2024 elections and an opportunity to depict Republicans as rudderless and dysfunctional. Isn't that fairly well established by now, Claire? Do you see Jordan as a potential gift to Democrats? Well, I think this vote today was a gift to Democrats, especially the 12 Congress people who voted for Jordan that come from districts that voted for Joe Biden. I mean, Jordan's an insurrectionist. Jordan won't even say that that President Biden won the election. Uh, You know, Alex, Jordan has been in Congress a long time. He has never passed a bill. Never. So what that means is he specializes in blowing up compromises. And what the American people want right now and what the Democrats are demonstrating is they will work with a Republican speaker who wants to get things done for the American people. You know, do the split screen. You've got the Republicans in the House that are supposed to be leading that can't couldn't lead a one man band at this point. And in the Senate, you've got the Democrats who have the majority are putting together an aid package in a compromise with Republicans to fund Israel, Ukraine, the southern border and to help Taiwan. So that's what's happening in the grown up side of the Capitol. And that's where Democrats are leading and working with Republicans to solve problems. Meanwhile, it is just a mess. I don't think Jordan's going to get the votes. Well, so, yeah, to that end, how, how does this end? I mean, Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic uh, minority leader in the House, suggested that the Dems would be open to a deal whereby the speaker pro tem, Patrick McHenry, who is sort of accepted on his side of the aisle, could lead longer than just a temporary speakership. Do you think that is the get out of jail option for Republicans here? I think the short term answer may be giving him more power than traditionally he would get under these circumstances. That is, allow him to bring up bills, allow him to bring things to the floor. Um, I don't know long term if that will work. I think what's more likely to work is for the Democrats to say, hey, we get it. It's going to be a Republican speaker, but give us somebody who's not what a Republican speaker called a legislative terrorist. That's what he was labeled by his own party. Uh, He's one of the most extreme guys in Congress. So I get it. The Democrats can't work with him, but there are others they could work with. And it seems to me that's what the American people would want the Republicans to do right now is to come up with a speaker that could actually get things done and solve problems for them. Do you think there's any risk for Democrats letting Republicans just dither amongst themselves and make a mess of this for as long as possible? Well, certainly there's a risk for the things that have to get done. Um, The the government, um, there has to be something done about keeping the government open before the middle of November. There has to be aid to Israel along with help to Ukraine and I think resources for the southern border. 
uh, and some help for Taiwan. So I think those things must get done. So Democrats need to be demonstrating every day they want to get those things done in whatever way the Republicans can accommodate them short of putting in line to the presidency a guy who still will not recognize that the American people elected Joe Biden president. Or, you know, if they could just all elect Hakeem Jeffries to be Speaker of the House, because you got uh, 216 votes there. Claire McCaskill, <laughs> thank you, as always, for your wisdom and thoughts tonight. I appreciate it, my friend. You bet, Alex. That is our show for tonight.